Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Adamite curse is what Joel Moker calls it. Man must work. Economists traditionally have treated work like an obligation, something you trade off for leisure, all of the stuff that you'd rather be doing. But work, as we know, is more complicated. It has meaning. We don't measure meaning in any of the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but it matters. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Road Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. In May, I went to Dallas for a conference organized by the Federal Reserve Banks of Dallas, Atlanta, and Richmond. It was titled Technology Enabled Disruption. Joel Moker was there. He's both an economist and an economic historian at Northwestern University. We played the hits. We talked about Karl Marx and Adam Smith, and we talked about how you make decisions as a society about new technology when it's better for most people, but tears a few lives apart. He is an optimist. He believes we're capable of solving any problem if we can come up with a good reason to bother solving it. I started by asking whether work needs to have meaning. Here's Joel. It's interesting. This issue, of course, came up in the 19th century. Karl Marx talked about a great deal about alienation. And I think he, of all people, grasped that Work has more than an income aspect, but it does, you know, it does have, in some sense, meaning. It does make people feel like they are participating in society, and hence, once you're divorced from that, you are. And that's the term he used. You know, alienation, Verfremdung was the German term that he used, and that that is, you know, the correct translation. But what Marx was looking at was a, a transformation that it really hasn't been sufficiently appreciated. And that is that, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, the vast bulk of people worked but had no jobs. And the concept of a job and the concept of work tend to be often conflated. And when people talk a great deal about what will happen to jobs, uh, what I keep forgetting is that, you know, people who have jobs work, but not everybody who works has a job. We have still a considerable part of the labor force who's self-employed, who don't answer to anybody, and who determine their own hours, their own location of work, and so on and so forth. Now, before the Industrial Revolution, that was the majority of people. People were farmers, or people were artisans, or people even were in the service industries, work for themselves. You know, even a teacher would work from his or her home and have students come there. A doctor would practice medicine from their own home. I mean, this notion in which we all work for large organizations like universities or hospitals or big department stores, those are all 19th century developments. And they have changed the nature of work because now work really consists of a large number of complicated relationships, both vertical and horizontal. So you interact with your coworkers, but you also interact with people who are, who are above you and below you in the hierarchy. And so the notion that all that work is, is something unpleasant that you do to make income completely abstracts from the notion that you know people go to work 
and they are humans interacting with other humans. And that for many people, this is the only way in which they interact with other humans because once they go home, you know, they may have a family, but you know, essentially what they do is they talk to their television. You know, where they, uh, There's not that much going on. So most of the interaction that people have is uh, with people at work. And what worries me, for instance, is that if we're going to look at an increasing uh, importance of something which we call the gig economy, which is kind of poorly defined, but I see the gig economy as the pendulum swinging a little bit back to the days before the Industrial Revolution, in which people worked on their own, in their own little workshop, in their own little you know living room, sometimes on their field, but they basically worked alone or with their family members, but not with strangers. But what work, I think, has meant for a very large number of people is interaction with people with to whom you are not related, non-family members. That's what the Industrial Revolution did. Before that, the household was the workplace, and the workplace was the household. And if you took on an apprentice, an apprentice became if a member of your, of your household, a child. Exactly right. The apprentice ended up living with you and often, you know, marrying with the family or at least sticking around for a long time. And so that is exactly the point. The household and the workplace were identical. The divorce of the two is what bothered Marx. But I actually think he underestimated the importance of making social connections at work. Now, to, in all fairness to Marx, the early factories, it was very hard to make social connections because, you know, you were confined to a task, you were under very strict discipline, there were almost no things like lunch hours and water coolers, forget, you know, about the, about the company picnic and the company retreat, things like that. These are all recent things. But what work does? It gives people uh, social connections. It networks them. And I think that is, to some extent, part of what meaning could mean. The other thing is more complicated, which is, do you really feel that you are contributing something to society? And I think it is dangerous for a somebody like me, like a college professor, to say, look, I take enormous satisfaction in my work because my students will come up to me 20 years later and say, oh, my God, I really loved your course 20 years ago, or I read your book, or, you know, I saw your podcast or your, you know, whatever. Uh, because that's a very small portion of the labor force. You know, if you are a, uh, a truck driver or if you are a cash register operator in a supermarket, you know, it probably doesn't happen a lot that... Somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you know, thanks very much, you know, but 15 years ago you drove a load of bricks for me or something like that. I mean, that doesn't happen. And so I think it's much more tenuous to think that people feel some kind of satisfaction of creating something. Remember one thing, you know, that the difference between an artisanal economy and a sophisticated manufacturing economy is that in an artisanal economy and you make a product from basically beginning to end. So you make a shoe or you make a jacket or something like that. And we saw today that you know, what, what will happen in the factory. You don't make a jacket, you know, you make a teeny a sleeve or you make, you know, two buttons. You're talking about an assembly process where a, a bespoke suit is assembled. Exactly. A, a, so it's the division of labor that we all think is so great. But Adam Smith himself, you go back to the Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith says, you know, this could well lead to a complete 
you know, petrification of the mind. I don't see, that's not a term he uses, but he, he talks about that, how a very fine division of labor could lead to what later Marx called alienation, because you are doing one task over and over and over again, and you really have no relation with the final product. I think that we don't even have to go all the way back to Marx or Adam Smith. I think we can look right now in the United States. There's a cohort of, of veterans uh, who've returned from Iraq and Afghanistan where they had a job with both fellowship and meaning, that they were living in close quarters with people who became their best friends, and their job was to keep their best friends safe. That is a clearly defined job with a fellowship and connections that has meanings. And then they report that they come back to the United States and they're doing jobs that don't mean anything to them with no real connections. Now, you're right about, you know, in the military or in similar arrangements, like on ships, for instance, you get the sort of same kind of idea, you know, which is there is a camaraderie and a companionship that is created in you know, relatively small groups. I think it's probably, it's probably doesn't work for groups that are larger than, you know, 15, 20 people. But within that group, there is a great deal of cohesion. And I think smart employers actually figure that out and they create these relatively small groups in which there is, you know, a, a common striving for a purpose. And if that purpose is, you know, company profits or, you know, make, making a good product, that actually creates meanings, much like, you know, a college professor will have in being, you know, teaching a course. Or, but my sense is that is probably fairly rare. I mean, there are many corporations uh, that have that, but, um, but it's probably not something that, that I would say applies in general um, uh, in the labor market. That said, you know, I mean, there's always... And the more you think about it, the more you can think, well, but but each job has its own satisfactions. And it's very hard for somebody who hasn't had that job. Like, I've never driven a truck, right? So I don't know exactly what the meaning is of driving a truck without interviewing a large number of truck drivers. Then you probably get a big distribution of, of uh, opinion there anyway. But I'll give you one statistic that I think is actually meaningful and that is if you look at happiness statistics and you ask people, you know, some kind of standardized question about their satisfaction in life, their happiness, their overall feeling, one thing that you could do is analyze how to extend to which that changes upon retirement. So you look at people, say, the two, three years before they retire, and then you look at them right after uh, when they retire, and you ask, you know, you try to look at a sufficiently large number of people and ask yourself, you know, what are they getting out of work? Now, this is not easy because the age of retirement itself may, of course, be correlated or caused by the, how satisfied you are with your work. So if you love your work, you're going to try to stick around longer. So you need to do this carefully. But this can be done. And, and when it's done, you find something quite interesting, and that is that the first year or two, actually happiness goes up. So people feel, oh my God, I have to get up early in the morning. I can, you know, take the dog for a long walk without looking at my watch. I don't have to fight the traffic. And then slowly it starts to sink in that you miss those lunch hours. You miss the talk about yesterday's football game and so on and so forth. And that sort of sense of 
alienation starts to sink in. You know, we are social animals. Human civilization is built upon a sense of cooperation. That's sort of axiomatic. And you know, there's a danger for people who don't have regular employment that they feel that they're missing out on that uh, and that they need to, in some way, be part of something larger than themselves. A job does, does that. Self-employment may not. Is resistance to technological change rational? Of course it is. doesn't mean it's rational for society. It's rational for an individual simply because if I invest a great deal in human capital and I draw rents from that human capital and some innovation threatens those rents, I'm going to try to protect my rents. This is standard you know, human behavior, which economists call rent-seeking, but okay, what rent the, protection. What if the thing that we think of as a rent actually has an incredibly important social function? You know, if we're talking about, uh, you may look at domestic suppliers of some agricultural good uh, are resistant to lowering tariffs, um, you know, because they want to continue to supply it. You could say that's a rent, but you could also say that they're maintaining communities um, and that that's important. So how do we, you know, the language of economics looks to maximize efficiency and it's in inefficiency where we have a lot of meaning and social importance. No, I agree. I agree. And, uh, you know, it's a trade-off that every society that is dynamic faces. I'll give you... An example that goes back half a millennium. You think about the invention uh, of the printing press. It was fiercely resisted by scribes who made their living basically producing books by hand. And many of these scribes lived in monasteries. So they were monks and this is what they did. And um, by introducing the printing press and making the job of a scribe redundant, which of course is, is what eventually happened, you didn't just help these people's rent. You, you, you threatened their way of life because this is how these people made a living. And uh, they resisted it to the nail. But that failed. And, you know, you look at it. From our perspective, and you say, my God, thank God that this happened. The printing press, by all measures, was a huge blessing to, you know, civilization. And how what would we done without it? But these people paid a price. And you could argue that um, monasteries had a lot of what we would now call positive externalities. Yes. Also, that didn't stop Henry VIII from dissolving. You know, and England did not go down the ocean. You know, I mean, of course they had positive externalities. And that, that's, that is a cost that had to be paid, and in many ways, society then looks for compensating mechanisms that can mitigate those costs. You can't quite get rid of them altogether, but you can mitigate them. So, for instance, you can think of, of England after it gets rid of its monasteries, of, you know, there's, there's a problem because the monasteries would support the poor, right? I mean, in case of famine, or elderly people, orphans, you know, invalids, and so on and so forth. So eventually, after, you know, <laughs> quite a bit of time, um, they have to pass the old English poor law. And the English poor law essentially tries to do what monasteries did, whether they did it as well or not. There's a long debate I'm not getting into. But society, there's vacuum created, and society has to fill that up. In between that happening, a lot of people suffer. There is... No question about this, Brendan. I mean, uh, progress is not nice and linear and smooth. There are lots of potholes in the road. There are all kinds of obstacles that occur. 
And uh, one of those obstacles is resistance. And uh, I, I have sympathy for resistors because I see where they're coming from. And from their point of view, it's rational. Well, what's the right way to frame it now? Because right now we think of productivity gains as positive. We look for them eagerly in the data. When they happen, we praise them. But if you look at a more modern form of resistance, uh, London black cab drivers, you know, you could say that that's rent-seeking. You could say that it's a guild with uh, unreasonably high entrance requirements and that you have to memorize uh, every street in London. Um, but it was also out of that inefficiency, out of that lack of productivity, came a middle-class living, which is now threatened or gone. So yeah. how do we make these decisions where right now we prize efficiency we prize productivity gains, but we can see the consequences of them. We aren't necessarily better off after we have productivity gains. I guess the question is, who's we? <laughs> and, uh, you know, an economist's knee-jerk response is to say, look, the purpose of production is consumption. And so what counts is what happens to the welfare of the consumer, the buyer, in this case, the passenger, but in other cases, you know, whoever, you know, the purchaser of shoes or, you know, whatever. And you say, look, this delivers better services at a lower price and higher quality. And so the hell with the people who, that's an economist sort of first response. A political economy person would say, yeah, but wait a minute, that may well be the case, but these people are going to resist and, you know, you're taking the chance that there will be political action here that may have negative consequences. Um, and so my sense is I like progress. I sort of, I'm a trained economist. So I really feel that we should think in the end that, that the purpose of production is consumption. But I'm much more hesitant than I was 20 or 30 years ago in saying, look, these people are just bad. They are just rent seekers. They are uh, an obstacle to progress. They are, uh, and you know, I think we should rethink that and basically see, say, look, um, we, should, we should perhaps ease in the new technology to minimize the cost to these people and um, in some cases perhaps compensate them now, the example you gave is, is, is very apt because there's now is an issue, as I'm sure you know, about New York cab drivers who paid incredible amounts of money to buy these medallions, which are now lost most of their value. So one solution would be to say, look, you guys are the victims of a process for which you are not to blame. And uh, we can basically make an argument The society should find some way of compensating these people and giving them, you know, some kind of soft landing, that I think is is now perfectly reasonable. But you know, the the, the problem is, Brendan, that not all of those cases are similar. Each case is different, and in each case, the costs and benefits may differ. Um, I'm thinking, for instance, about the very fierce resistance that you see among farmers in Europe to genetically modified organisms, okay? And there I have much less sympathy because I actually think that these farmers will be better off if they adopted GMOs, but they're kind of conservative and they don't want to experiment and there's all kind of bogus stories about 
how this is going to be in some sense a menace to society, which is just mostly nonsense. So in the case of the of these poor immigrants who bought New York taxi medallions, I have much more sympathy than for people who could have for a long time seen GMOs coming, did nothing about it, and now that it's on the doorsteps, uh, they're raising bloody hell. So in each case, it's different. Going back to England you know, in the 19th century, um, they had an option we don't have. And that is that a lot of people who were, whose livelihood was terminated by the Industrial Revolution found their way to America. And uh, we don't have that kind of safety valve anymore. Uh, on the other hand, it's also true that our population growth rates are much lower. So, you know, the, the congestion on the, on the supply side of the labor market isn't nearly as bad. And as the concerns about lack of employment seems to be dwarfed by, by the concerns about lack of workers, meaning that if people are deprived of an existing livelihood, you know, there could be ways of easing them into where they can bring benefit to society in some other way. And uh, th that, those things are all feasible, They're, but they are not going to be done by free markets. They are going to be done by public policies or by charity or by organizations who are dedicated to be aware of this problem and help solve it. And that's, that's something that we know how to do. We know how to do this. This is not rocket science. This is easy. You just need the political will and you need the conviction that this is the right kind of policy. This is morally correct, but it's also politically wise. I mean, politically, uh, what you're looking at now is a process of depression and alienation in the American countryside that has led to these sort of Case Deaton people. You're talking about the, the deeply terrifying work of uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton. These exactly. are the deaths of despair and the sort of anomaly within America where specifically white people without college educations uh, are have all kinds of worse outcomes. They're more likely to get sick. They're more likely to commit suicide. And, and that, that data is terrifying. That data is terrifying when it first came out, uh, I mean, Angus told me he, he just couldn't believe the numbers. He said, this must be some mistake. They went back to the data, and then all of a sudden they realized what they were looking at. You know, but this is really, I think, a policy failure. I mean, this is not uh, something that society can't deal with. It, it's a specifically U.S. problem. I mean, I have yet to see anything similar in, say, the Netherlands or Sweden or even Germany. You don't see these deaths of despair. It's the American countryside among poorly educated people or at least less than college educated people where these deaths of despair occur. And uh, to my way of thinking, this has profound political consequences in the growing gap between rural America or what is known sometimes somehow disparagingly as flyover country. Uh, and the sort of bicoastal America in which this, this phenomenon is much less pronounced. And um, this is not unrelated to the fact that employment opportunities for these people are declining and that we, we have made very little effort in trying to soften the blow. Is there an inability of economists traditionally to talk about distribution that has contributed to that? Uh, sometimes I think that for about 20 years, there was this conversation between economists and politicians where economists would say, look, yes, some people are going to be worse off, but overall, 
everyone's going to be better. There's going to be more to share. So you figure out how to share it equally. And the, all the politicians heard was, overall, there's going to be more. They read, everything's going to be fine. And there was no attempt whatsoever to figure out what the distributional consequences would be, much less how to fix them. So now we're stuck with this problem where the original action, productivity and enhancement, trade, is in fact generating more wealth overall, exactly as predicted, but the distribution is awful and people are livid about it. And this feels like a two-decade failure of communication. I think you're absolutely right. The last 25 years, and this is not really in dispute, uh, almost all of the gains of income have accrued to a very small proportion of the income distribution, whereas everybody else has been sitting there constant. Now that again, is an American phenomenon. You know, there's, there's some of it in Britain as well. But if you look at the rest of Europe, uh, this is much less pronounced. I mean, it's either extremely small or non-existent. You look at Germany, you look at, at Switzerland, you look at, at Italy, you look at the Scandinavian countries. Now, in all of those countries, the Gini coefficients have barely moved. And that's, I think, tells you something about American civilization, which for certainly since 1980 in the election of Ronald Reagan, has moved into a direction very much like what you were saying, which is damn distribution. We're just going to get the economy to go, and if the economy does well, everybody will benefit. And that has turned out to be an utter illusion. And usually that produces unexpected political consequences, which we are experiencing now, which is that the people are angry, uh, but instead of voting for somebody who may change that, uh, they tend to go to somebody who um, takes advantage of it. In a way, it's, uh, it's carrying out a prediction from Keynes. He said, and I'm, I don't remember exactly the words, but he said at some point, if you don't take care of people, you're going to get a revolution and it's not going to be the revolution you want. Yeah, I don't think we're looking at, at a revolution in the way people are thinking about it at, at, in times of of John Maynard Keynes, when everybody was still thinking about the Russian Revolution or the revolutions in Eastern Europe. He didn't live to see them, but certainly he knew about the Russian Revolution and other uh, revolutions. I think what happens in these cases is very hard to anticipate. You get unintended consequences uh, that shake up the political system. Um, they may end up causing irreparable damage to democracy to what we call civil rights, to what we civil society. A lot of things may well be, you know, uh, innocent bystanders in this process. We need to worry about inequality, not because I think it's morally wrong. I actually have sort of mixed feelings about that, because if you're really worrying about morality and fairness, your argument could well be, look, do the people, even the people in the bottom 20%, in the United States, is their life so bad? And, you know, both a historian and a development economist would say, look, these people, even those case and Deaton people who are so alienated, but materially speaking, these people live better than people lived 150 years ago. They have longer life expectancies. They have better nutrition. You know, they are cooler in the summer, warmer in the winter, you name it. Uh, and even access to medical care, with all its flaws and all its warts, is still far better for them than it was 100 years ago. Uh, so, you know, you can say, look, these people are fairly good materially. Why are we so concerned about that? 
But the problem is exactly the politics. The problem is that they will, rightly or wrongly, feel that this system isn't working for them and they're going to go for somebody who will change it and that will maybe bad for everybody else. That is one of my big concerns, speaking as somebody who, you know, who feels very strongly about you know, an open society, a cosmopolitan society, a society in which a lot of values that economists think are important uh, are treasured. You know, free trade is being threatened by this, immigration is being threatened by this. These are all the wrong targets, but they come out of a process of disenchantment and alienation. That's worrisome. Are we talking about, in a way, figuring out how to temper what we traditionally think of as economics with morality? You know, you, you talked about Adam Smith earlier. Um, his understanding of the price of labor was that societies believed that there was just a basic set of wages and conditions that you owed people regardless. Sure. We've always had legislation and interventions in the economy all the way from minimum wage legislation to supplemental income, to food stamps, to, you know, Medicaid. I mean, you name it, we have a whole system in place, and every industrialized country has that, in which we say, if the market decrees that you will earn your marginal product, and this is your marginal product, okay, and we deem this is not adequate, we will supplement it with a variety of things. And in America, we do this worse than in Europe, but everybody does it to some extent. We have minimum wage legislation, and we have um, a variety of other things that are implemented to, in some sense, mitigate you know, the, the roughest edges of market outcomes. I think that's probably a fair way of seeing it. So we never quite take this very seriously. Um, and, we, and I'm glad we don't, because I wouldn't want to live in a society in which we, we did none of that. And I don't think it's realistic. The welfare state was created precisely because people didn't like the market outcomes as they were. I mean, that's basically what the Beveridge Report, which is sort of like you know, the, the, the fundamental document of the welfare state. Oh, you sorry, know, the Beveridge Report. The Beveridge Report is a report that was written in England, in Britain, and during World War II in 1943, in which basically it created a blueprint for the post-war welfare state with, you know, uh, the medical health service, with unemployment insurance, with minimum wages, with, you know, the, the usual sort of mechanism of a welfare state. Now, some of it was already in place, mind you, since 1907, because Lloyd George was the one who, sort of who started that before World War I, but it was very small. And you see it sort of growing until it grew and grew and grew and became so big that people felt, oh, this is getting too big, so they voted Margaret Thatcher into office and she cut it down and, you know, and it went up again. So, I mean, she uh, kept a copy of Hayek in her handbag. Yeah, well... <laughs> Either apocryphally or not, that story is out there. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not sure if she read Hayek, but I do know, you know, that a lot of Republicans read uh, Hayek, and that's on a good day. On a bad day, they read Ayn Rand. And so, they, so people have, 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 of course, misgivings about the welfare state. I have misgivings because it's, you know, it's a bureaucracy and it's, you know, governments do screwy things. But we couldn't live without that because we could not really live in a society in which we take uh, free market economics too seriously. And that's why we have the welfare state. And that's also why we have antitrust and we have regulation. And we have a lot of other things because the economy is too important to leave it 100% to the market just as it's too important to leave it 100% to the government. You need this odd partnership in which... 
markets and governments oddly complement each other and correct each other, and they can't exist without the other, even so they hate the other side. It's like a bad marriage in which the two partners are not fond of each other, but they realize that going their separate ways would make life infinitely worse for both of them. They're doing it for the kids. <laughs> what? They're staying together for the kids. Well, they're staying not necessarily for the kids, even if they don't. I know, I know bad marriages where people stay together not because the kids, but because, you know, the house and the division of labor and, you know, you do the laundry and I do the drive and whatever. And, and anyway, it, it's not clear that the marriage is always bad. It's bad on bad days and good on good days, like every marriage. But I think that is uh, the way society has tempered the instincts of of free market economists. And that's the greatness of, on the one hand, you get Keynes and the Keynesians who basically looked at the macro picture and then there's a whole literature in public finance that says, look, you know, there are certain things that the free market does that we don't like. And this consists basically of two large groups. One is market failures, okay? So people use inputs they don't pay for or they create externalities or, you know, things like that. And the other thing is what you just said, which is even if there are no externalities, there are no public goods, there's none of that, but we don't like the distributional outcome. So we're going to change the distributional outcome. Now, how do we do that? Well, we have a progressive income tax. That doesn't seem to do it. So we make sure that there are certain goods, sometimes known as merit goods, that everybody is entitled to. So education, healthcare, housing, uh, things like that. And so I think that, that that's a world that took a century to build. And it's a world that thinks it's not the best of all possible world. Uh, we could do better, but it's sustainable. So we never completely accepted the logic of the market. Never. And of course, you can see that in, in all sorts of interventions, um, even in America today. Never. But we also never realized it wasn't even a dream. It was an assumption of economists in the early 20th century that productivity gains would eventually be having people working only a few hours a week. We didn't get there. The productivity gains were not shared. Is that is that an economic problem or is that a political problem? Well, as we said earlier, you know, I think part of the reason is that people continued working because they, they found some meaning in that. But remember one thing. I mean, living standards have increased enormously. We could produce the living standard of 1920 and people working two hours a week or something like that. I mean, the problem, of course, is that now people want a lot more than they had in the 1920s and, and they want different things and they want things that were never available before. And so clearly, just to, you know, as capitalism produces, you know, more products that people want and, you know, and produces better products and keep making them better all the time, we need to buy stuff. And, uh, you know, that, that doesn't bother me, in fact. Um, you also have to keep in mind that even though productivity has risen, uh, the number of hours that the average person works as a proportion of total life, or total number of hours lived over, you know, that number has been declining even so the number of hours per week has stayed constant because people start working later and they retire and they have more golden years in retirement. And so the dependency ratio has been increasing all the time. We have more and more people who are, for either reason, because they are too young or too old or not working, will be carried by the people who are working. And that's, of course, a reason why 
they have to keep working more hours simply to pay for this. Let me ask the question we've been circling around this entire time, which is that uh, all of this is interesting uh, insofar as it has meaning for the present. And so we are facing another set of technological changes which uh, threaten, as they have so many times in the past, uh, to destroy a bunch of jobs. And we have to figure out how to respond to that now as people who write about this, as people who study this, as people who make policy. Um, so is this time different or is everything going to be fine again? I think that this time is different. And there is nothing in the technological future in the world that says it won't be fine. There's a lot in the political institutional sphere which worries me a great deal. The impact of technological change on society is highly nonlinear and very curvy. And the notion that somehow if we innovate more, you know, as long as we take care of distribution, we take care of the losers, we're going to be fine. That's just not true. What happens is that technological change has, because it's novel, because we are into terra incognita, it has a way of screwing up. It has a way of having unforeseen consequences that we then have to fix by coming up with even more technology. And so the classic example that's on everybody's mind is, look, one of the things we did in Industrial Revolution is we learned to burn fossil fuel on a very large scale, not just to, to heat our homes, but to do everything, right? Transportation, uh, manufacturing, you name it. We learned that, and that was great. Who knew in 1820 what this was going to do to the atmosphere, to climate? We didn't know. And so we screwed up, in, not because we were dumb, but because this was unknowable at the time. So now we're stuck with it. We're looking at a world in which sea levels are rising, in which species are disappearing. I mean, things... And so we have to come up with more innovation to fix that. And what is true for climate change is true for lots and lots of things in which, for some reason, technology bites back, is, is the term that Edward Tenner gave to it. It bites back. It, it, something goes wrong which we did not expect. You know, I'll give you one more example. Take, think of antibiotics. Antibiotics, from the point of view of economic welfare, is a fabulous invention, right? Because not only is it extended life by a great deal, but it's not even clear how many sort of victims there were of antibiotics on this side of the bacteria, right? I mean, it's not clear that it did much damage to the medical profession. Doctors embraced it. Every pharmacist embraced it. Everybody embraced it. It was a great thing. There's one small thing, you know, Darwin decreed, so to speak, that eventually every antibiotic would run out and, we'd, and drugs would become drug resistant. So we have to run to stay in place. And that's true for climate change. It's true for antibiotics. It's true for, you know, freshwater supply. I mean, you name it. I mean, it's across the board. And so are we going to be okay? The answer is yes, but we need to keep innovating unless the previous innovations are going to go and, you know, explode in our faces. That is, I think, something that I have written about and, and, and inferred very cautiously, that you know, it's, all, it, it's impossible to come up with innovations that don't have unforeseen consequences that screw up. Your admonition that we need to keep innovating assumes that innovation is a thing that we can consciously achieve, that it's uh, endogenous, that we can make decisions that will create innovation. Um, is that the right way to look at it, or, or or do we sometimes just get lucky with innovation? We do get lucky. We get it's we get less and less lucky. 
In the past, innovation was to some extent a matter of luck. And you know, to some extent, it's still true today. But the fact of the matter is that we know what ingredients go into rapid or slower innovation. We know exactly what goes into that. And it's not just sort of incentives to innovators, you know, a patent system that, that, that Zarina Khan loves so much. and the, the great American solution of lowering the cost of capital. Right. But, 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 but lots of other things. But this is not something that is uh, particularly... Uh, I mean, there are innovations that happen that nobody anticipated, right? That nobody could have foreseen and that are based on science that they were, or on knowledge of any kind that just wasn't available. So if you, in 1850, nobody expected that atomic energy would have been a possibility, right? Because the energy content of atoms wasn't really realized until the beginning of the 20th century. And so uh, there are things that we, that we can't anticipate. But most of the issues that we are facing today in terms of the consequences of past innovation, um, most of these issues we can innovate ourselves out of, but we need to make the effort, we need to spend the money, we need to educate the people, and we need to have policies that create incentives I mean, if you, I don't know if you've seen this, I read this in the Wall Street Journal or the FT, about why pharmaceutical firms aren't actually investing in new antibiotics. And the answer is there's no money in it because people take antibiotics, you know, and for three or four days they're cured and they stop taking it. That's not money. You won't make money on, on chronic disease, okay? So the incentives are, are screwed up. But we can fix that. We can set up a promise and say, you know, anybody who comes up with new antibiotics that's proven to be fine gets 100 million bucks. By God, you'll see how, or maybe more, I don't know what the number is, but that kind of thing. We can easily affect the path of innovation. Look, one of the things, and I, I'm, I'm very cautious in drawing uh, inferences from the past because the present ain't like the past. But one of the things that I think that that, that seems to be arguable at least, is that society will innovate when it has a, what's, what's called a focusing device, when it has a well-defined problem that everybody knows this is something we have to do. War. So, War is the most compelling focusing device. It almost always ends up being that we so spend So Project Manhattan is a classic example, right? So we basically take a whole bunch of scientists, engineers, mathematicians, you know, and so forth, put them in one place and say, you guys do this, voila. But it isn't just war, it's, it's, you know, it's other things. Oh, think about the polio vaccine. That wasn't war, but everybody knew polio was a threat. You know, we put the best minds to it, bang, we get it. In the 18th century, there, you know, it wasn't polio, it was smallpox. But they looked at you, know, you and you see the literature, how hard people thought about how do we stop smallpox? Just inoculation, it doesn't work. So the best minds of Europe were busy figuring it out. And then at the end of the century, you get vaccination. And everybody goes, oh, but yeah, well, that works. And bang, and everybody goes and vaccinates the hell out of everybody. And smallpox, you know, with some bumps on the road, disappears. That's a focusing device, okay? Society makes an effort to solve a problem. We now have certain well-defined problems that are in front of us, okay? Climate change, uh, ocean acidification, the disappearance of fresh water, uh, drug resistance. You want more? I'll give you more. I mean, these things are all in front of us. Uh, very few of them 
are beyond our capacity. And here's one more point I want to make since you asked. One of the things that drives technology, as I think we can all agree, is better science. It's almost, you know, that's trivial. But what we, I think, don't fully realize is that science itself is not something that happens you know, somehow exogenously, it's arranged down to, like manna from heaven. Science is driven by the tools it has at its disposal. We, science, is looking at a golden age that's going to make look everything before child's play because we have these vastly powerful tools. Now, if you think that that's what, what computational science or nanotechnology are going to do, I mean, that's Mind-boggling, you know. That's why I said this morning, we ain't seen nothing yet. Imagine what Galileo would have done, you know, if he had the data from the Hubble telescope. My big hope is that that is where, where the key to the solution to climate change is sitting. I don't know exactly how, and I don't think it's knowable, but that is how we're going to cope with it. We're not going to get some kind of international agreement in which all nations of the world are going to sit, hold hands and, si and sing, you know, kumbaya and say, oh, let's stop burning coal. Ain't going to happen. You know, India, China, America, United States, not going to happen. What we will do is find technological solutions. Maybe it's carbon storage. Maybe it's geoengineering. I'm not sure. I'm keen on that, but people talk about it. We'll figure out something. But that's where the solution is going to come from. And we have the tools to develop this. Okay. We didn't 50 years ago. Think about what would have happened in the world if AIDS had emerged, not in the 1980s, but in the 1580s. We would all have died of it. I mean, it was, it, 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 what is amazing is that a new disease appears out of nothing. And instead of sort of flagellating ourselves and killing the Jews as they did in Europe in 1348 when the Black Death hit them, we t took a bunch of scientists and we say, this is a well-defined problem. Here's a new disease, you know, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Figure out what's causing it and get us a solution. And you know what? We bloody well did it. We did it. I mean, that is, the AIDS is no longer, you know, I mean, it's no longer what it was. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember how scared we were. So now we've got Ebola, we've got something else. I mean, it's, it's gonna, these things are going to keep popping up. I mean, the you tendency is still there. I mean, if you talk about the idea of what the Black Death did socially in Europe, uh, in the United States, we did go through a period where we where we vilified the gay population here. Oh, that, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't a pogrom, but it wasn't pretty. No, no, but it no, wasn't no. Pretty. I, I agree. I mean, stupidity, we didn't get, abolish stupidity, okay? I mean, it's still with us. But the fact of the matter is that in addition to doing all these dumb things, we also did something very smart. We told scientists, okay, whoever comes up with a solution is going to get Nobel Prize, famous, blah, 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 right? And we created those incentives. It was the sort of ultimate focusing device, exactly like polio was in the 1950s, uh, except we had better tools. And AIDS is a more difficult disease to control than polio, right? Because it's, it's actually... You know, a virus that attacks our immune systems, so it's harder to, far harder to control. You can't immunize against AIDS the way you can immunize against polio. But we did it. We, we figured it out. It kind of gives me a, a warm glow, which is, you know, if you give us a hard a problem that's, and, and you create enough incentives, okay, and if it's within reach of your scientists, you'll solve it. It's really astonishing how often that has happened uh, in history. Um, give you one more example. Here is one of the big issues that's plaguing the Western world after Columbus. 
sailors sail the oceans. They go everywhere, right? They sail to Australia, they sail to China, they sail to Africa, North South America. They can measure latitude. They can measure longitude, right? And so it's a story about a focusing device. Everybody knew this is a problem that has to be solved because, you know, the British Navy, you know, in, in, in 1717, you know, uh, 10 ships went down at, at the Scilly Islands and all that. We have, so there, it was a very strong focusing device and lots of people were working on the problem. Right? We don't know about all the people who didn't succeed or came up with solutions that didn't work. the British Admiralty created what we would today call an X-Prize. They, they created an X-Project, but in fact, it wasn't just the British Admiralty. It was the French, it was the Dutch, everybody, the Germans, everybody was working on this. People who understood this was for them what polio was in the 1950s, what AIDS was in the 1980s, what global warming is today. This was a, a clear-cut problem they had to solve. And by golly, they solved it. It was hard, took a long time, but... The fact of the matter is, by 1800, people sail with these marine chronometers and they can measure longitude. Bloody well, we did it. I mean, we meaning, you know, the most ingenious, clever people who were incentivized and focused on solving this, this problem. That, I think, is, uh, gives me a sense that there's hope for mankind, even though we, there seems to be very little progress in the quality of our institutions and our politics, which unfortunately creates an ever-growing gap between our technological capabilities and our political world quality. Joel Moker, now, now I want to have another hour where we talk about the degradation of our institutions and then another <laughs> hour after that where we talk about chronometers and learning by doing, but we will not get to that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email us, alphachat at ft.com, for any reason at all. Also, though, I like my job. It has meaning to me. Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.